Reading our Bibles regularly can be a challenge, but we're all on this journey together. We're praying that this podcast inspires you, helps you better understand God's Word, and builds your faith. This is Join the Journey with your host, Emma Daughter. Thanks for joining. Today, we're reading 1 Kings 6, in which our reading drops us 480 years after the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt. That's how the chapter begins. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. In an instant, in less than 20 words, we're reminded of God's work of redemption freeing the Israelites from slavery through the plagues and the Passover, as well as his work of revelation, giving the Israelites the law via Moses at Mount Sinai, his presence guiding them as they headed toward the promised land. But now, here in 1 Kings 6, God's permanent home amidst his people was about to be built. No more traveling and no more tabernacle tent. In today's Devo, Susan reminds us that it has always been God's desire to dwell with his people. We see this throughout scripture, and we see it here in 1 Kings 6, 11 through 13. However, if we read this verse carefully, we discover that God's presence comes with a condition, obedience. God essentially says, obey and I will be with you. It had been 480 years since God led the Israelites out of Egypt. Israel is now established as a kingdom, and Solomon builds a temple for the Lord, a place to worship him. It is a magnificent sight to behold for all of Israel and the surrounding nations, pointing them to a holy God. Perhaps even the quietness in building the temple reminded the workers of his holiness. That's 1 Kings 6-7. The inner sanctuary, the most holy place, represents the very presence of God, and the intricate detailed carvings covered with gold seem to speak of his glory. And yet— Only a few would ever enter into it. God was present with his people, but sinful man could not approach him. Once per year, with great fear and trembling, the high priest entered the most holy place by sprinkling the blood of a perfect lamb as atonement for his sins and for all the sins of Israel. Don't miss it. The one true holy God of Israel is also a merciful God. Susan continues by writing that all of this points to something much greater— a more perfect and complete atonement for sin, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. The children of Israel could not fulfill God's requirement for obedience, and neither can we. Jesus secured God's promised presence with us through his perfect obedience and atoning sacrifice. Now, the inner sanctuary has sprung wide open for those who come humbly with a repentant heart and place their trust in Christ as Savior, Hebrews 9.12. His Spirit lives in us, 1 Corinthians 3.16, and we have everything we need to live a godly life, 2 Peter 2.3, pointing others to a holy and merciful God, she concludes. And Susan's right. There's a condition, actually, regarding God's willingness to dwell with his people here in the Old Testament. It's found in the middle of today's reading in verses 11 through 13, which read, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, verse 12, concerning this house that you were building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. Verse 13, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And in regard to this conditional clause that seems seems to be plopped right in the middle of the construction description, one commentator says this, 
Probably this word from the Lord came to Solomon during temple construction. So it belongs in the middle of the text. Note that this was a conditional promise based on obedience to the Mosaic covenant. God would establish Solomon's kingdom forever, i.e. it would remain intact, 2 Samuel 7, 13. He would also continue to dwell among the Israelites and not forsake them. Unfortunately, because Solomon did not continue to obey the covenant completely, God divided his kingdom after he died. Because the nation forsook the covenant, God ceased to dwell among the people and forsook them temporarily to captivity. But then the commentator points out a pattern. Throughout the Solomon stories, the author presents an activity, then waits until later to state God's approval or disapproval of it. For example, chapter 3, verse 1 through 15, express approval of Solomon's rise to power, which we read about in the previous chapters, chapters 1 and 2, or said in my own words. In chapters 1 and 2, we see Solomon rise to power. And then in chapter 3, the writer expresses approval of his rise to power. Again, the pattern is that we read about an activity, and then a little while later, we see what God thinks about the activity. So in chapters 1 and 2, Solomon rises to power. In chapter 3, the writer expresses God's approval of his rise to power. And then the commentator continues. Chapter 5, verse 12 explains that the decisions in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, demonstrate God-given wisdom. This strategy continues here, where through some unspecified manner, Solomon receives God's word about the temple. The writer evidently inserted this section of text, verses 11 through 13, in his description of Solomon's building activities to emphasize the centrality of obedience to the overall success of the project. The pattern the commentator is identifying here is really pretty simple. We see Solomon do something or start something, and then the author will emphasize the importance of doing it well or how it was to be done or what we need to know about the task at hand. And these disclaimers, so far, have tended to be positive expressions of approval toward Solomon. But now, the disclaimer appears to be a warning. When it comes to our response to this warning or this passage as a whole, Susan raised two questions that I found quite helpful. Number one, the inner sanctuary of the Lord has opened wide for all to enter through Jesus Christ. If you've placed your trust in Christ as Savior, what keeps you from living daily in the holy presence and power of God? What steps can you take to make His presence and power a reality in your life? Take a moment and ponder this. And then question two, the temple that Solomon built displayed the glory of God to all those around them. As the temple of the Holy Spirit, how is your life pointing others to a holy and merciful God? They're great questions, and candidly, we could end the podcast here, but really quickly, I'd like for us to take note of verse 7, which reads, As the temple was being built, only stones shaped at the quarry were used. The sounds of hammers, pickaxes, or any other iron tool was not heard at the temple while it was being built. So did you catch that? The temple was built in silence, which is so crazy. I mean, especially since I live in Dallas, I drive past construction sites every day and they are not quiet at all. In regard to the silence, another commentator points out, destructive work is noisy, constructive work is silent. God was in the still small voice, not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. Christ's own career, how silent it was. Drums are loud yet empty. The spread of the kingdom was unnoticed by the world's great ones, Caesars, philosophers, politicians, and it silently grew underground. Hence may flow an encouragement to those whose work is inconspicuous, 
a lesson not to mistake noise and notoriety for spiritual progress, and guidance as to our expectations of the advance of Christ's kingdom. It will transform society by slow, often unnoticed degrees, by radical changes of individuals' habits. The elevation of humanity will be slow, like the imperceptible rise of the Norwegian coast. Sudden changes are short-lived changes, lightly come, lightly go. What matures slowly will last long. And lastly, when reflecting on the growth or sanctification of our souls, the same commentator continued by saying, There must be much still communion and quiet reflection. The advance in the Christian life is variously likened to a battle, since there are antagonists and struggles needed to overcome, and to the physical growth of people or plants, which the mysterious and dwelling life works without effort and almost without consciousness. We aren't consciously aware of our physical growth as it happens, but it is also likened to the erection of a building in which there is continuity and each successive course of masonry is the foundation for that above it. That work of building is work that must be done in silence. If we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, we must silently drink in the sunshine and dew and so prosperously pass from a seed to a sprout and a sprout to a stem and a stem to a bud and a bud to a flower. Surely, nothing is more needed in these days of noisy advertisement and measurement of the importance of things by the noise that they can make than this lesson of the place of silence in Christian progress both for individuals and for the Christian church as a whole, he concludes. So as we wrap up, I'd pose these questions. What does silence look like in my life? Do I assume that loud and flashy, or just loud, is an indicator of prosperity or success? And lastly, when it comes to spiritual things, what am I impressed by? That's all we've got time for today, but as always, I'm so glad we're all on this journey reading the Bible together. The Join the Journey podcast is produced by Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. You can learn more about Watermark by connecting with us on social media. Just search Watermark Church, all one word. And to read along with us, visit jointhejourney.com. And thank you guys for listening.